Matthew Bat is kind enough to join us right now. Uh, currently, he is a creative writing and English uh, teacher over at the University of St. Thomas, lives in St. Paul with his family. He has uh, put out the mem- uh, memoir, uh, memoir, Sugar House. His latest book, The Last Supper Club, is now on shelves. He's kind enough today to join us to talk about this book. Matt, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My, my pleasure. Now, um, the, the, the concept behind this book, it should be known that you are a professor, but you had a sabbatical, correct? And that, that led you to have to try to find additional income? Yeah, you got it. So uh, where I teach, uh, sabbaticals come with uh, a 50% pay cut. And uh, being an English teacher, my math skills are pretty shaky. And it, <laughs> it took me about seven or eight months to figure out that that was kind of a lot of money. So I had to get a job, and it had to be one that paid quick. Um, and waiting tables was about the only other thing I knew other than teaching. Now, you had experience. How much experience before teaching did you have with waiting tables? Uh, basically, my whole life. Uh, I've worked at, at restaurants in college all the way through grad school. I think all told I worked in uh, like 11 different restaurants over 15-some years. Did you – would you ever come across the concept of saying, you know – because I'm presuming at this point you're going through to school to get the teaching degrees and, and go through this. But did it ever cross yeah. your mind to say, you know what, I could stay you know, you know, as, a, as a, a waiter or a server. I could do this and I can make some good money. You know, to be honest, it never really did while I was doing it going to school because there was always this, you know, keep your eyes on the prize thing. Um, I'm going to be a teacher someday and <laughs> hopefully I'll get a job at a university and I'll just, you know, I'll have trouble, like, figuring out where to put all, all my bags of money. Um, <laughs> so it, it just never occurred to me during grad school while I was waiting tables on the side um, that that was a possibility. And then the, the revelation with that I discovered waiting tables after I became, you know, uh, an associate professor on sabbatical uh, was that actually if you get a job at a good restaurant, you can make as much as I do as tenured faculty. Oh, yeah. Um, which, which was just nuts, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, by the way, I, do... I incurred roughly a hundred thousand dollars in debt to figure that out. Wow! I, I, I when you say it, uh, you think to yourself because you 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 point out something which is I think so common in a lot of different fields. I'm going to yes, I'm working in this job, and yes, I make a pretty good living. But I'm going to have my degree, and I'm going to I'll be raking home. I'll supersize all my meals, you know that sort of thing. And then <laughs> and then you kind of get there, and you realize, oh, I just you know you get to choose what you do, which is good because if you like what you do, that's a really yeah. good thing. But at the same time, yeah. the trade off is you're not going to be it's it's not the wheelbarrows of cash. No, man, I'm still eating ramen and you know happy meals. Never mind the supersize option. <laughs> Nothing wrong with ramen, though. I like a good ramen. No, absolutely. And I was, by the way, uh, I had a, a birthday a few weeks back, and I went to Ocean Air. And I mean, as you're looking around, there, there's a great example of servers uh, and the staff, the entire staff there, where they're making. I guarantee you, they're making some good money there. Uh, but you know, it's kind of one of those things where they earn it because they are. You know, you get into yeah. some of these high-end restaurants, you can make a good living, but you have to be at the top of your game. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I I, I don't think there's that big of a distinction between, like, the best servers like, like at Ocean Air um, or, like, at Manny's or something um, and, like, you know, pro athletes, basically, because um, mm-hmm. these are people who are, like, working their butts off uh, but making it look graceful and easy um, and, you know, somehow, like, feeding us and making us happy at the same time like that that's a nutty job description (laughs) absolutely so you go on sabbatical 
you realize you need a job. So talk about the process here. At, at what point did you say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to go back. I need cash. I've got serving experience. There's tons of places that are hiring I, I mean, in the, in the service industry. Talk a little bit about that process and, and how do you ended up where you ended up. Yeah, so, you know, with uh, a lot of university teaching jobs, uh, faculty handbook guidelines and stuff say that you can't have another teaching job, you know, like you're on sabbatical to do research or whatever. And, and I did all that, but, you know, you can't control who pays you for that. And it turned out nobody did, so... Um, I just remember hanging out at, uh, the neighborhood watering hole, the halftime wreck over here in St. Paul. Um, and I just was kind of looking around and I thought, oh yeah, I could do this again. You know, like I always like waiting tables and bartending. And, uh, it just occurred to me at the time too, that like, uh, the Surly Brewing Company had just opened its, you know, destination brewery. Um, and I'd been there a couple of times and, and both times there had been like, you know, an hour, two hour, three hour long wait just to just to get some hog frites and a couple of pints. Um, and I thought, what the heck? Like, let's see who's hiring. Um, and turns out they were. Uh, and uh, I got an interview for this um, banquet staff position, which wasn't my first option. But, you know, you got to take what you can get. Um, and when I showed up for the interview, um, the manager of this like new high-end fine dining concept thing interviewed me instead of the the banquet position um and asked me if i wanted to work at a a place that was serving some crazy you know just super high concept food um i I don't think i can say it on the radio but he's like you know we're gonna serve like duck tongues and and stuff Mm. (laughs) um and at that time i was you know game for anything um and it you know turned out uh, i took the job and uh, ended up working there from the day it opened to the day it closed. Uh, even though my sabbatical had ended and I was back to full time, uh, full pay and all that. Uh, but I loved the job and the people and the food just so much that that I kept working at the restaurant even after I was teaching again. So when you as a, as a waiter and you're going into this, you know what he, what he's describing is what you've just described is really three different kinds of server experience the the uh, a beer hall with with you know quick appetizers mm-hmm. quick meals there a banquet staff which is generally putting on a little more high end kind of coordinated events and stuff like that but then you go to the high end restaurant here did it intimidate you at all when he suggested hey i want you over here <laughs> well at first i thought he was kidding i thought mm-hmm. like duck tongues like that's that's not a thing right i mean even <laughs> if it's a thing it's not something we eat um, well, that's why Donald it, Duck. That's why Donald Duck talks like the way he does. I mean, we, 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 it's right. just, just the way it is. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and turns out they're really difficult to prepare uh, so that they're tasty. Um, but but anyway, I I thought we'd be serving you know like steaks and salmon and stuff, which is uh, pretty easy for me after uh, my years of you know slinging you know hanger steak and um, fillets of fish and all that. Um, but anyway, w- once we got into training. It was just so overwhelming. Uh, for every item that was on the menu, uh, the chef, uh, Jorge Guzman, um, gave us these like 200, 300 word spec sheets of ingredients and where stuff came from, how to pronounce it, what it was inspired by, what it was a fusion with. Um, and like most of this stuff, like I'm going to say like 240 out of 250 words were new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't mean just in like a vague way. I mean, like we had a, uh, Escoffier, like gourmet food dictionary that like was basically worn out by the time we got got through training. 
Uh, joining us right now, uh, the Last Supper Club of Waiters Requiem. It's Matthew Abat joining us, talking about this. So talk about that then a little bit because, I mean, up until that point, before you, you know, when you were serving before you became a professor, at what point did you ever work for anything close to that type of restaurant? I'd never eaten at anything close to this kind of <laughs> restaurant. Like, I didn't, I didn't really know they existed outside of like, you know, Top Chef and that kind of stuff. Um, so I was really just, um, you know, pegged against the wall in terms of like my knowledge and my um, skill level and whatnot. Um, not to mention, I, I was a solid 10, 15, even 20 years older than most of the other people who worked there. Um, and they were just all whip smart, super talented zeroed in on exactly what needed to be done. Um, and so I went in with the expectation, like I said, you know, I know how to serve a steak and take a temperature and pair it with a glass of wine or whatever. But this was off the charts. Like, this is food I've never heard of. Uh, we needed to make, like, flashcards for, like, every dish. Um, we needed to make flashcards for beer. For you know, And we were responsible for every bit of knowledge you can imagine, um, you know, how something is cured, how something is made into like a pastrami, um, how beer is brewed, uh, how you add um, various elements to, um, to flavor it in different ways. Um, and ultimately, the, the coolest thing about it was um, at the time, you know, this is like 2015, there was no like high-end fine dining restaurant in the world except for like maybe some random place in, you know, Manhattan that paired beer with like high end food, mm-hmm. um, and so that was really uncharted, and, and was just a super cool thing to to be able to be on the ground floor of. Well, and and the restaurant did get some national accolades for its uniqueness and and quality, correct? Yeah, you know, it, it went from just like total radio silence for months. Like as far as we knew, nobody was coming in. Uh, as far as reviewers or critics, uh, people would wander in when downstairs was was super busy. Um, but usually they were pretty baffled by what we were doing and like why, for instance, we had at one, at one point in the menu, I think three different items that featured uh, the tongues of various animals. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was beef tongue, there's the duck tongue, and there was veal tongue. Um, and, you know, that's not what usually people uh, go to restaurants above breweries for. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, and then the st- once the reviews started coming in, they were they were super positive for the most part. Um, and suddenly, you know, after about a year and a half, uh, we get a call from our great manager, Danny DeNovis, who's like, yeah, we, we've got an all-call meeting. Everybody has to come right now. Um, and I thought, oh, crap, that we're closing. Um, and we get there, and instead... He's like, yeah. So we're uh, we're on the best restaurant list of food and wine magazine um, for the entire country. A list of like ten restaurants, and we were like number two. Wow, um, it was just bonkers. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, uh, you know, a heavy tongue menu that gives new meaning to the word tasting menu. There you go. Thank you. I, oh, I, I'm here. All, yeah. I'm here all week. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so you you go back to this. You find solace in it. You got a challenge there. Clearly, a challenge. That oh, is yeah. there, and, and as you describe, it's athletic, it's hard work, but it's enjoyable for you. Talk about the moment where you kind of realized you were, you were, you know, this was more than just that sabbatical thing to do while you're on sabbatical, and became you found the solace in in doing this work. Yeah, so I, I mean, to to start off, I'd I'd want to clarify that, like, I love teaching, I love my students and my colleagues, and all that. Um, but, you know, we, we're playing on a different sort of like clock 
in in teaching. You know, you're 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 not really gauging your success as a teacher by how somebody does on a pop quiz or or even an exam at the end of the semester. Like you, you want to know how they're doing, like five, ten years after they graduate, um, and and maybe then you you can say, you know, I did have an impact or something like that. Whereas like working in pretty much any restaurant from a a greasy spoon to a, a super fancy place with, you know, linen tablecloths and all that. Um, like if you do it well, like somebody wants to shake your hand. Like they, they just want to tell you, you know, that was fantastic. Yeah. Like that, that changed my day. That changed my week. Like I can't wait to come back with my mom, with my wife, with my colleagues. Um, and like that, that started to happen. Like we would see people come in once and they'd be a little baffled. Um, but by the end of the meal, They'd be like, okay, all right, you do what you're going to do, and I'll, we'll just play along. Um, and then they'd come back, and they'd come back again. Um, and that was just like the, the, the gratification that comes with um, that sort of uh, like physical proof of returning when they certainly don't have to, and there are a million other you know, great restaurants in the Twin Cities to choose from. If they keep coming back to your table, um, it's it's pretty special. Um, definitely a, a sweet thing. Well, and it, it, what you just said is so relatable because I'll even apply it to people at home. How many times have you know, I'm, I'm the one that cooks most of the food in my house. And when my family looks at me and goes, Dad, this is really good. I really like this. You know, th- there is a feeling there which you just don't get too often. I mean, it's the feeling of accomplishment that I created something and it's not mac and cheese and hot dogs. It's, it, you know, it's generally you right. know, it's something a little bit more ornate. But it's, uh, you know, you do appreciate, I think, you know, that. And I can understand when you're doing that, especially when you're talking, you know, when you're talking to these high-end restaurants, these are some pretty big checks people are having to write to eat the food. So, you know, it, the fact that they're writing the check and saying the thank you, that's a that's a big thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and, you know, when it comes down to it, like you're saying about cooking, I mean, there is a need you're fulfilling. You know, you're you're nourishing at, at a base level, but, you know, you could warm up a MRE and do that. Yeah. Um, so when you can do something special and, like, make them something either that they want again um, or that they, like, they liked what you did so much that they're like, yeah, you know, you, <laughs> you've got the... Um, you've got the mic, do whatever you want, put, put on whatever you want. Like we trust you to, to sort of come up with, um, the next thing. Um, and that was another really cool thing about what, what Jorge and his sous chef, uh, Dustin Thompson were, were always doing. Um, like we had a new item on the menu every week. Um, and there were very few items that stayed on the menu longer than a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it wasn't like we were the typical restaurant that was like, you know, okay, we got our burger, we got our steak. We've got our app. Um, we've got our fish. Um, we're locked in. Let's just keep it that way and put it on cruise control. Um, so, like, I've got a stack, like, five inches thick of, like, all of the previous dishes and all of the notes we had to take to, you know, get to know stuff and memorize stuff and, and learn how to, um, you know, sell it and present it in, a, in an interesting way. Um, and that was just, like... I'm not even that ambitious with like <laughs> my own teaching and I get to choose what I do in my classes. Well, um, so that, well, that was really cool. That's the thing I like about this is because it professionalism and, and, and taking pride in your work and something, it, it, there's this concept that you, know, you go to college and you go get this degree and I'm in the office and I got my briefcase and I sit down and there you go like this. I mean, we, 
it is nice to remind ourselves you can find great pleasure and great satisfaction in every job. And then there's like there's a guy working a punch press right now that really does it well and really enjoys doing it. And God bless him. And if that's what you want to do, you should do it. And I think that that's the important thing about a book like this is that it, it tells people, you say, don't feel afraid to go back and revisit things because you, you forget what you actually do like sometimes. 100%. Yeah. And I feel like that's the point of it is not like higher education is is doomed or something or like you're, you're going to be a sad teacher um nor is it that like waiting tables is for everybody like it's an excruciating job and you know i'm 50 years now uh 50 years old i don't think i could do it again um so it's it's definitely demanding in in almost every way possible but i think you're exactly right you know like if if what you're into is um you know, uh, making sandwiches at a deli uh, or spot welding or, you know, whatever, you name it, making surfboards, um, that you can find passion wherever you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was part of what um, I thought I was going to do. Like, I, I ostensibly was wanted to write a book on sabbatical about, like, what jobs make people the happiest. Um, and, and so I had this list of, like, 10 different occupations, I did research and all that. Um, and they were surprising. They were like, you know, a, a priest, a kindergarten teacher, but then like some kind of kooky stuff, like a heavy equipment operator. Um, and then one that I just didn't believe, which was like a, a financial advisor or something like that. Um, but my, my my idea was to like try out all these jobs, you know, kind of like Morgan Spurlock, Super Size Me style. Um, but it just never materialized. It was just logistically too difficult. Um, but the last job on the list was, you know, uh, server. Um, and so I thought, well, I guess I'll do that again. And it ended up being, you know, this job that I thought was disposable and like, uh, just a, a stopgap in, in my early years ended up being the job that I found, uh, the most satisfaction of. And, and those two years that I worked at the brewer's table were, were really among um, the happiest of my life. I love the term the last supper club. I mean, I was a kid. I remember going to the Elroy supper club up on the iron range. And nice. supper, supper club, supper club had a different kind of meaning there. You know, I, I just, just really quick here. Get, you know, is there a specific reason why you chose the title "The Last Supper Club"? I mean, was it, you know, was the place you worked technically a supper club? Yeah, no, it technically wasn't. Um, but uh, you know, where I started the book, uh, the first chapter is the last day of our service, and it was actually the first day where we were all able to finally get together as a staff and have what's called a family meal um, where, you know, the cooks uh, rustle up something that everybody gets to to eat, you know, ahead of a a long eight, 10, 12 hour shift. Um, But usually you're still, you know, finishing your prep work or your work or stuff like that. And and you don't even get to sit to eat it. Um, But on this last day, we pushed a bunch of tables together. um, And so so there we were on the last day of, of the restaurant, sitting, you know, like, like a bunch of uh, apostles about to crucify somebody. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it, it just was so obvious. But also, I just like the phrase. Um, but also, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. I love Minnesota. I love the Midwest. And supper clubs for me were just like, um, you know, the, the fondest part of like going out with your family. Um, and, uh, you know, like there's just that notion when you get to a cool supper club where your parents have their, you know, brandy old fashions, um, and you're sitting there as a kid bored out of your mind, but all of a sudden they put a, a basket of crackers that you can eat like for free. Um, and then there's like that glowing orange ball of spreadable cheese that's free somehow too. Um, I don't know. There's just something 
always magical about places like that. The Last Supper Club, A Waiter's Requiem, Matthew Batt. Uh, the book is from University of Minnesota Press. Uh, Matthew, great book, great interview. All my best on this. And by all means, when you write your next one, come on back. Please do. Anytime. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you very much. The Last Supper Club from Matthew Batt.